HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And today we're talking about salmon. Chinook, sockeye, king, Atlantic, any way you name it, it's salmon. And my author today, my guest is an author who actually said something very interesting. He said, each time we bite, we take a, eat a bite of salmon, I'm sorry, each time we eat a bite of salmon, we are tasting evolution, natural history, and deep time. These are the words of Nicholas Mink. Nicholas, who wrote the book Salmon, A Global History, it's actually a natural history of salmon eating. And uh, Nick, welcome to the show. You're joining us today from Indiana. I am. Thanks, Linda, for having me. Okay. Now, Nick's joining me from Indiana. However, let me tell you a little bit about him. He's a food author, an entrepreneur, a reformer, as he puts it, um, professor and nationally recognized expert on sustainable food systems. During the fall and the spring, Nick is an urban sustainable foods fellow in the Center for Urban Ecology at Butler University. But during the summer... He coordinates education and outreach programs at the Sitka Conservation Society in Sitka, Alaska, with lots and lots of salmon. And in between that, when he has some spare time, I don't know where that would be, he is the president and chief salmon steward and co-founder of Sitka Salmon Shares. If you know anything about um, fish, uh, I guess you call them almost like uh, CSAs, but it's their fish cooperatives where you can actually pay ahead and buy shares of salmon. So the Sitka Salmon Shares is the one that he's um, with. And Nick, I'm, that's why I had to ask where you were, but if I looked at the season, I guess I would have known. That sounds like a really interesting travel life 
from Indiana to Alaska and back. Yeah, and, you know, uh, Sitka Salmon Shares distributes all over the Midwest. So I find myself in Chicago and Milwaukee and Madison and Minneapolis, but I kind of have my my home base here in Indianapolis, um, which is a really cool, interesting, unique food community um, doing food policy and uh, and and food development work here and then uh, and cr- trying to spend as much time as I possibly can in Sitka uh, but you know it can be difficult with everything else that I'm kind of doing in the Midwest but, and I guess Sitka. not uh, and I guess not being there in the winter is okay <laughs> well you know believe it or not Sitka right now has been warmer than any where else in the Midwest for about the last uh, two weeks these these what what's happening is these kind of polar vortexes that have been kind of trundling down from the North Pole have um, have had equal um, changes to the weather in Alaska. I mean, it's been just incredibly warm. Sitka has broken its high record, um, its record high for uh, like the last five days by something of an average of like nine degrees. <laughs> um, so it's been in the upper. Sitka's had days in the upper fifties. Um, wow. The last couple of days and the last couple of weeks. And of course, you know, you know, you worry about that from the perspective of salmon, right? Because Ab- yeah. salmon, part of um, part of their honing mechanism is is to is to kind of feel out the, the water temperatures. And, and um, you know, that's this is probably going to affect the way in which the runs, these magnificent, wonderful, incredible salmon runs uh, materialize this summer. All right. Well, it's interesting. I've learned so much from your book. Uh, not that I actually ever, you know, went to research mm-hmm. salmon other than, you know, fishing methods and and um, and varieties. But it's it's a it has a very interesting natural history, as you say, of the the eating of salmon. Um, and as you say, every time we take a bite we're tasting this, you know, deep history, this evolution. But tell us a little bit about that evo- what the evolution of salmon. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, one of the, the points that I, I try to make in the book is that, you know, we, we think a lot about, like, taste of place, so the gut de terroir, which is this idea that, you know, um, the the environments and the ecology where, where um, things are grown or where they live um, affect the way that they, they taste. And I think we kind of get that. Um, but one of the points that I try to make, especially in this first chapter of the book, and someone that... Um, or anybody that eats wild salmon or even farm-raised salmon knows is that um, the species that you're eating, which are in effect a, a, a document of, of natural history, um, are, are profoundly affected by, um, you know, how these fish evolved. And, 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 you know, it's just sort of examples is, you know, um, the king salmon, which is also called Chinook salmon, it's the most prized of the the wild salmon species, especially among chefs, um, you know that 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 fish tastes the way it does because, which is this very fatty, rich, large, luscious flakes that no other wild salmon has. Um, that fish tastes the way it does because of the of it, it, that fish evolved with these mammoth stem rivers, the big massive rivers in the in the North Pacific and the American West, whether that be the Sacramento or the Columbia or the Stikine, or the Taku, or the Yukon uh, in Alaska, the McKenzie, uh, those fish evolved to run 
know, thousands of miles up these incredibly big river systems. And in order to be able to do that, they developed bodies that, that, that allowed them to make these journeys, these mm-hmm. bodies that become these, that are these 30, 40, 50, 60, at one time, 100-pound fish, which are harder and harder to find nowadays. And these bodies that laid down all this, you know, really luscious, um, incredible marine-derived fat, which allowed them to make these journeys up these stem rivers. Um, and in effect, you know, that's that's the way in which the natural history of this animal affects the way that eaters know it. And, and you know, all salmon have that same sort of, um, you can tell that very similar story for, for you know, salmon like sockeye, which have a very bold, um, rich flavor, unlike any of the other um, salmon species. And that's largely because they've evolved to eat uh, lower on the food chain um, mm. than the rest of the salmon. They're filter feeders. They don't they don't prey on 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 fish. Um, they they basically filter out uh, you know phyto uh, zooplankton from from waters and eating that really dense those dense uh, rich um, uh, zooplankton um, affects the flesh in this way in which there's there's really no wild salmon that's more salmony i think than, yeah even even than, the color right even and the, the color, color is yeah, so rich right yeah, yeah that's you know you're not going to find a salmon that's as bright red across the board as sockeye and that's a reflection of, of very much of what they eat and how that pigment uh how the pigment in their food turns into the pigment of their flesh and so there's all these very unique examples of that taking place and um and it's one of the things that i kind of off offer um, to the readers as something to consider as we kind of interact with all sorts of food that have natural histories that are reflected in the taste right. um, well, that, the, that, we, that we have of them. And the salmon, as you pointed out, the salmon didn't always make this this trek that, that now we equate with the, you know, the spawning season of the salmon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one time they were, um, most people uh, at, at this point do think that, you know, salmon were at one time totally, um, you know, they were freshwater creatures and that this was an evolutionary mechanism that allowed them to deal with um, the, variable, the variable environments that they um, ended up dealing with, which was, um, you know, flooding and um, freezing and, and going out into the ocean, you know, and this was, of course, hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago in many cases, going out into the ocean and becoming what's called anadromous, an anadromous species, meaning beginning their lives in freshwater, moving to saltwater and returning to freshwater to spawn and die and recreate their species was a, um, is, is too an evolutionary mechanism for, for survival that affects, I mean, a, a, on some level, their taste. Hmm. Interesting. So we jump forward to about three thousand years ago, and we and you and you say that they that there is evidence that um, there were very what we would might consider sophisticated fishing techniques three thousand mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah, we know that the reason why these very sophisticated um, cultures in the Pacific Northwest uh, developed in the way they did was because of their access to salmon. Um, and uh, there's plenty of archaeological evidence that suggests that, you know, um, fishing weirs, nets, um, kind of what you would might consider higher volume salmon harvesting technologies were being invented in places that today are, you know, Oregon, Washington, um, California, British Columbia, and Alaska, that 
that really allowed, because of this access to this tremendous quantity of food, I mean, I think I deliver a line in in the salmon book that's something like, you know, salmon was kind of nature's first convenience food hmm. because for, you know, depending on where you were, you had this six to eight month period where um, you had these fish appearing directly um, at your doorstep. And um, and they were able to harvest this vast amount of energy from these oceans, um, you know, in their treks out to the Bering Sea or up the uh, up the the coastline and kind of back down to their natal rivers where they all spawn. But they were, you know, what essentially happened was that they they could um, harvest, you know, um, from this great area this energy and come back and return to humans who sat there with nets and and spears and weirs to collect um, this incredibly abundant and eat this incredibly abundant natural resource for months and months and months. And, you know, that's why, you know, up until very, you know, basically industrialization, some of the most sophisticated cultural forms uh, anywhere in the uh, world were in the Pacific Northwest. And that was because there was so much food and so much, and this food was salmon that, um, you know, uh, society was able to develop much more complex structures than if you were you're just kind of your traditional hunter-gatherer where you're spending 99% of your cultural and metabolic energy on chasing after food. The food was coming to, um, you know, people who would become the Klingit um, and people who would become the Haida and, and Sitka um, and allowing them to, to, to access food in ways that was very atypical for um, people before supermarkets, right. I guess. Well, it, if anyone who has had the privilege of, of being there um, in the Pacific Northwest or specifically Alaska or has seen some of the wonderful uh, documentaries and photographs, I mean, it's true that the fish practically jump in the boat, right? I mean, oh, it's yeah. unbelievable. Um, it is, you know, it's this, this kind of remarkable thing, which is, you know, the Pacific Northwest, but particularly Alaska still has these salmon runs that are, you know, at this point, they're, uh, they're as strong as they've ever been, um, as far as we can tell. And it's this, this very, you know, that iconic image of wild nature in the way in which we see it in our heads. I mean, certainly there's wolves loping uh, across the Rocky Mountains and, and, and buffalo in the Great Plains, but certainly one of those is, those, is these immense, immense salmon runs that that took place annually, of course, in the North Atlantic at one time, not so much anymore, but, you know, in the North Pacific. And that still continue on today at historic levels and, and, and really only in, in, in Alaska. Hmm. Of course, we know that in Oregon and Washington and in California, there's been uh, tremendous work to rebuild those salmon runs. But, you know, the Columbia, for instance, is about 10%. Uh, at, at most of what its historic w- run once was. Well, this um, abundance of salmon, of course, it only occurs during, you know, it's, it's accessible to people um, to easily fish during the salmon runs. But uh, for, for centuries, well, basically millennia, there have been very, not unique, but um, very tried and true methods of preservation um, you mentioned that salmon represents 12% of the world fish consumption, of all other mm-hmm. fish in, in the world. Salmon represents 12%. And, of course, before our uh, our desire for, you know, that fresh salmon or waiting for the, you know, the, the Alaskan king salmon, 
most of us knew salmon from these preservation methods, the canning or the drying or the or the smoking. Mm-hmm. And this has this has quite a history in itself. Yeah, and that's and that's really the kind of the core of what the book explores, which is, I mean, I kind of make the argument that, you know, the way in which eaters have known salmon and used salmon historically has been predicated on these kind of like global, I kind of call them global regimes of preservation, which is, you know, this epic of curing. um, And then the the next is the epic of the can. um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, uniquely um, fresh and the cold chain is a form of, you know, we're preserving by uh, you know, stopping deterioration rather than mutate, and it's kind of denaturing, um, changing the flesh. But um, you know, the fre- the the the, um, the emergence of this global fresh regime in the 1980s, and all the incredible debates that have come from that. You know, why do we want wild salmon? Do we want farm salmon? What's the difference between the two? Um, are in in effect um, reflections of the emergence of a fresh. Um, preservation regime, and so that's kind of the way in which the the second half of the architect of the, of the book is structured is is by looking at um, the way eaters have kind of historically known salmon through curing and through canning and through um, this fresh regime, and how that's affected um, you know its use in home kitchens, how that's affected how it's um, seen and viewed um, by um, consumers and eaters, and um, how that's influenced um, the, the production of hmm. the fish as exactly. well. Right. Um, we are going to talk a little bit more about this, um, these methods of preservation and the abundance of, uh, of, well, the perceived abundance of fish that we have as well as the future of it when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years, so it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. We are back, and we're talking about salmon with Nicholas Mink from um, the university, from Butler University, as well as Sitka, Alaska Salmon Shares, where he works during the summer. And Nick, I, in the beginning of, of your book, I read that Sitka, the city of Sitka, produces so much salmon that they annually ship about 25 million pounds of wild salmon. That's a lot of salmon. 
Yeah, um, it's it's certainly one of the great, the world's great salmon markets, uh, for sure. I mean, you know, historically, I, th- I think in the last five or ten years, um, there has been an understanding of, of kind of Bristol Bay's fishery, right? And certainly mm-hmm. the, the controversy that's kind of happened with the Pebble Mine has made Bristol Bay a kind of a, not only a national environmental issue, but a national food issue. And we kind of know that fishery very well, which is primarily a sockeye fishery, in fact, almost exclusively a sockeye fishery. Right. Um, and we know Copper River, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that, 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 that fishery out of Yakutat, that's, of course, um, uh, been su- supported by uh, processors, uh, Copper River processors, a couple decades ago, getting together and say, how do we market this fish as a fish that is a premium fish? And they decided on marketing this Copper River fish. And the, the, the other beauty that Copper River has is that it's one of the first commercial, it is the first significant commercial salmon fishery to um, get on the market in, in, in June. Um, so it's the first fish that you're going to find. It's the first wild salmon of the season, for instance, most of the time that you're going to find in New York City from Alaska. Oh yeah, and they Although, did they did market it well. I mean, the, so, oh, there are yeah, several. No, they <laughs> right. uh, they have a price premium for their fish uh, that um, other markets don't have, and that's it was it's a it's amazing. It's a it's a great success story of how um, processors working collaboratively can. Um, support of, of value for their product that might not otherwise be there. But, you know, interestingly, Sitka is, is, is certainly right there with how much fish is produced. Now, Sitka is unique, um, as I kind of explain in the book. Um, it had um, one of the first uh, commercial, if not the first commercial fishery on the west coast of North America uh, that the Russians started just outside of Sitka in the first decade of the of the 19th century, um, so you know, 1806, 1808, Russians were in Sitka um, preserving uh, and salting fish and sending it back to, you know, places as far as away as St. Petersburg. Um, Sitka had the second cannery in all of Alaska, so there's some historic importance mm-hmm. there. Um, and today, Sitka is really the the home and the capital of 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 Alaska's hook and line, uh, quality-oriented uh, hook and line fishery. Let's and, and, you know, that's, so, and that's what you, I want to talk about a little bit. Okay, so um, is is the methods of fishing today that are are approved those that have come under fire? And mm-hmm. talk about that in terms of of preservation of the of the species. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in general, you want as you know, just in in fisheries policy and in fisheries management and in, in fish capture. Um, you generally want to find uh, as inefficient of a way to catch the fish as possible. The more efficient <laughs> you're, the more, more efficiently you're catching the fish, uh, oftentimes the more indiscriminately you're catching other fish. And um, you know there is, I think the con- consumers generally know that's a line caught species. It's a quality species when you see line caught. Um, but oftentimes, it, simultaneously, from an ecological perspective, line caught generally means, on the one hand, a very inefficient way of catching fish. On another hand, it's a very ecologically discriminate way of catching fish, meaning that you're not getting a lot of bycatch. The fish that you're targeting is allowed to um, is is what's being caught, and not other fish. And um, simultaneously, it's just a very low volume way of catching fish that, in general, is it's more expensive, but mm-hmm. it's 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 uh, has it's more expensive from the perspective of 
cost to the consumer, but there are far fewer environmental uh, and actually far fewer social costs to catching that fish when you have a hook and line fleet that are specifically targeting um, Alaska's coho and king salmon, which is, you know, again, that's really what Sitka is, is, is famous for, the, is their hook and line king salmon fleet, hmm. um, which is very, very unique in Alaska. Well, the um, and you mentioned that, well, of course, when Russia... Uh, was in control of of the Alaskan territories that they had um, they started the canning industry there mm-hmm. but interesting I thought it was interesting that the the first as far as we know the first canning you mentioned that the first canning of salmon did not occur in the Pacific Northwest no but no, actually, it actually no. yeah occurred in uh, Scotland and, and then uh, traveled over to Maine and then California and um, then up the coast. But, yeah, you know, it's one of the great things that we forget, which um, ecologists, historical ecologists, don't think that there were these incredible runs of Atlantic salmon in the same way that uh, there are these runs of uh, Pacific salmon. But certainly there were um, mammoth runs of, of wild salmon in the, in the North Atlantic uh, in Scotland, in England, uh, in Ireland, um, in what become basically Denmark and France, and um, of course all the way south, basically to to New York, um, had these really incredible, beautiful uh, salmon runs that, um, for a variety of reasons, by the 1960s, uh, were more or less uh, wiped off the face of the earth. By by oh, like I said, um, you know, by things like overfishing on the high seas, um, by habitat destruction, logging, damming, uh, to the point where uh, you know the wild Atlantic salmon is basically anywhere at this point an endangered species. And if you ever see on a menu wild Atlantic salmon, <laughs> that restaurateur is either doing something incredibly bad uh, or they're mislabeling that fish. Interesting. So so let's get into that discussion about farmed versus wild. What and there's so many um um uh debates about farmed salmon being, you know, not good and not healthy and that it's uh you know inhumane inhumane. Well, you know, that it's not a good way to raise the fish, but the techniques have gotten better. Um the aquaculture has gotten you know, much more developed. So uh, let's address that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it, it is the central debate of the fresh market, right? You know, and, and you know, we don't really have these debates in the canning uh, with canned salmon or, um, or uh, even cured salmon. But, you know, is that fish farmed or is that fish uh, wild is certainly something that a lot of consumers ask. And um, I, I like to think about it in a bit more of a complicated way because one of the things that I love to say is that they're all different um, gradations of well, wild salmon and there are all different gradations of farm salmon. So, I mean, I think we can kind of start there, which is, you know, um, there are farm salmon and there are salmon farmers that are clearly doing a much better job um, with ecological sustainability, social justice, and actually producing a higher quality farmed salmon from a gustatory sense, right? Um, uh, particularly um, giving salmon, these farmed salmon, more room to swim around so mm-hmm. that they develop better muscle tone. 
um, is makes a huge difference. And you know, so in thinking about it as farm salmon having different gradations, um, you know, you can, you know, Nor- Norwegian farm salmon, uh, farm salmon from Denmark, uh, farm salmon increasingly from Scotland is a much higher quality farm salmon than you would get, I would argue, from British Columbia or Chile um, that has um, far fewer environmental uh, regulations, um, produces um, all the bad things that we hear about, like acute ecological damage beneath farmed fish farms, right? You know, with having to do with, um, you know, salmon, uh, farm salmon destroying wild salmon populations, um, really mucking up the ecologies beneath um, the salmon farms that are growing out these fish. Um, those are more of a reflection of a kind of Chilean-style farmed uh, fish, or a British Columbia-style farm fish than they are of a Norwegian farm salmon. Now, from the perspective of wild salmon, that same thing is very much the case. Uh, A hook-and-line caught coho salmon or a hook-and-line caught king salmon um, is, I would say, a far superior ecological culinary uh, product than, say, a a net-caught salmon from the Columbia River, which is most likely a, uh, most likely a hatchery-produced salmon. And so it's incredibly complicated even within those constructions of farmed and wild. Um, but you're going to get a kind of a biased opinion because I own a wild salmon company and I'm kind of a wild salmon advocate. But, um, you know, we know that, uh, to me, the taste, um, you put a piece of wild salmon and a piece of farm salmon Next to one another, in general, the taste is night and day. Um, mm-hmm. Farm salmon are much more mild. Um, they are less, uh, to me, they don't have as much of a complex taste, right? You know, because they're all fed corn and soy. You know, there's some fish meal, of course, in there. But, you know, a farm salmon is very much like a, a feedlot cattle. Um, they're all produced to lay down fat, um, grow out fast, and taste the same. I mean, that's the beauty of a wild sockeye or a wild king salmon or a wild coho salmon is that, you know, all of them taste a little bit different. And it's based on what they were eating and when they were caught and how they were caught. And simultaneously, I mean, to me too, wild salmon, the muscle that they develop because they're wild creatures, because they're swimming thousands and thousands of miles in the ocean, um, uh, creates a culinary product that is just far more desirable from the perspective of, the, I think, the end consumer, right? Which right. is this very, it's like too, very toothy, um, has a lot of, has a really unique texture. Um, and then, of course, from the health perspective, we do know that, you know, one of the th- reasons why we want to eat uh, seafood is for this, the benefits of, uh, of omega-3s, right? You right. know, this, omega, this idea that, you know, one of the, that the beauty of king salmon is it has more omega-3s in it than just about any... Um, uh, any other fish in the ocean, and and that's a reflection of eating wild foods itself. So you're going to get more omega three, less omega six in wild salmon than you are going to get in farm salmon. And those, right. those, 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 well, it's like know, anything, and, and it's like anything else. If we can if we can uh, reeducate people to eat seasonally, and mm-hmm. then and salmon has a season. And I got to tell you, I mean, I love you know, getting a fresh piece of, of sockeye salmon or waiting mm-hmm. for that, you know, the Copper River or the, or the or the Chinook. But also the cold, alder-smoked sockeye 
is unique in its flavor and tastes fantastic also. And that's a preservation method. If we can just get people to accept more of those preservation methods and eat those in the off-season. Or even, or even can, or bringing back canned salmon. Paul Greenberg has this great essay, and I think it was in the New York Times, of course, the author of Four Fish, where he mm-hmm. says one of the most disastrous culinary changes that took place in the 20th century, and this really happened between the 19th about 1960 and 1990, was the um, broad um, switch from canned salmon, which, of course, was this great food that everybody ate in the 1950s. It's the only way we knew salmon. Yeah, you didn't (laughs) know. And you were landlocked, especially if you're in a landlocked state, right? You didn't know. You didn't know salmon. I didn't know that there was such a thing as fresh salmon. I mean, I'm not that old. And... um, and so the transformation of uh, going to canned tuna, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the fact that, you know, when we think of canned fish, we think of canned tuna. Um, canned salmon is an absolutely wonderful product. It's gotten um, the quality has continued to um, get better. And, you know, that's, you know, a lot of people, when we think of salmon, are like, oh, yeah, this wonderful sockeye uh, fresh or maybe a piece of smoked kita. Uh, but, you know, canned salmon isn't. Is a is as good of a protein as you can get, and it's incredibly versatile. And of course, our my parents knew that, and our grandparents all knew that. But we've kind of lost that culinary knowledge. And um, you know, thinking about, I, I do this like it's totally unscientific. But in the book, I take a look at um, the series of you know, there's about two dozen cookbooks that um, have come out in the last twenty years just on salmon. And you know, surprisingly, it turns out that very few of them. In fact, some have 80, 90, or 100 recipes on salmon, none of which uh, ask for, the, for canned salmon. And isn't that remarkable? Yeah. You know, in the, 19, in the 1920s or 1930s and 1940s, you get a cookbook. Of course, cookbooks at that point were, were generally not, wouldn't focus on a single ingredient. But you, of course, don't find a, you don't find a, a recipe for fresh salmon. Out of the dozens of recipes That's for right. salmon that well, call for can, salmon. So you see how our thinking has changed, that we're obsessed with fresh oh. and fresh is better. And Yeah. Yeah, and it's it, in canned salmon was considered old-fashioned and also, well, it must have lost in the processing, must have lost some of its nutri- nutritional value, you know, which, which of course, you know, if you um, buy the right stuff, it's not true. Yeah, and no, absolutely. Canned salmon is a wonderful product. So we have to push that for the future of edible salmon. We have to keep yeah. keep salmon alive. And you do mention something very interesting. And, and if I can quote a line from um, the future, talking about the future of edible salmon, you say that what people don't realize is that the very nature of wild salmon, and indeed its meaning to humans, hinge upon global desire to consume the fish. And we have now created, um, you know, thanks to these wonderful fisheries and, and shipping and, and distribution, we've created this hunger for that fresh wild fish that, that yes, we're undermining the sales of, of the other uh, pre- preserved methods in the off-season. So it's kind of like it... it we, you did it. You did itself in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one of the one of the things that one of our fishermen likes to say, who's also most of our fishermen are very actively involved in the conservation community in Alaska. And um, you know, the best thing to do for a wild salmon actually is to eat one, um, because you're ensuring this global desire for wild salmon, which ensures healthy management, with it, which ensures that wild salmon get the um, get um, 
that have, have political power when we're debating about what natural resources to develop in Alaska, right? Because when you're eating a salmon um, and you know about wild salmon, you know about their importance, you're ensuring that that wild fishery has as much uh, policy importance to uh, as, say, mining or, um, you know, timber. And, you know, it's not to say that these are, that, uh, that, that mining and fishing and timber are not um, exclusive things, but, you know, generally if you're managing a landscape for mining and you're managing a landscape for timber production instead of salmon production, you're, um, you know, you're undermining salmon fisheries. And, you know, so we actually, interestingly, we need this desire of uh, to consume salmon and to consume wild salmon to ensure that they have the political importance um, that they need to uh, ensure that we don't begin to manage our public lands, which are, of course, these great salmon estuaries in Alaska for timber production and for uh, for my uh, for mine production, it's, it's that's the debate that's going on right now in Bristol Bay uh, right. with this with the pebble mine. Is you know, are we going to choose salmon or are we going to choose um, the world's largest open pit gold mine um, that's ever been uh, considered? And uh, by the fact that people know that they want to eat Bristol Bay salmon and they know that they want to support these wild fisheries, you're allowing your consumer dollars. You're, you know, you're kind of you're voting with your fork are letting people know, letting policymakers know that consumers want to support healthy fisheries rather than um, the development of global uh, of, of, a, of a gold mine that's going to supply the world with with tens of billions of dollars in gold. But in reality, I mean, I feel like it's the salmon that are the true gold um, because as long as we manage for them, you know, everything else will fall into place well with the natural world. Excellent point, and an, an excellent place for us to stop. And I'm sorry to have to stop. There is so much more wonderful information about salmon and its history, and and you do a very nice job in presenting it in a concise manner in your book, Salmon, A Global History. And it's part of the Edible series by Reaction Press. Thank you so much, Nicholas Mink. Thank you for joining me and, and sharing your, your, uh, your time and your information. And good luck with Sitka Shares. Remember, people, that's sitkasalmonshares.com. And do you distribute only throughout the Midwest, or is it uh, nationwide? Uh, we, um, we focus on our Midwestern markets, but if people are interested in having ship, uh, fish FedEx to them, we can certainly arrange mm-hmm. that as well. Yeah. I know there are, there are some other um, salmon share, I mean, not salmon share, but fish share markets, and I think primarily salmon, right, salmon share markets around that do service the uh, the Northeast. But um, it was certainly interesting to hear about Sitka, Sitka, Alaska, and I'm going to be looking for more information on that. So, again, thank you so much. And you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.